in the end, we had to solve a couple of problems in one, which was uh, instead of having kind of one concentrated wind farm with higher economies of scale, but much higher risk of a hurricane uh, coming through and bla blasting, like taking out multiples at one time, took a distributed system. Uh, so said, OK, so instead of having kind of 10 turbines close together, we'll uh, have a look at the areas of the island where wind is, is most suitable and get kind of 10 different planning permissions. Uh, and, and have them all spread out. If one goes down, we still have nine going. Welcome back to the Future Engineering Club podcast. My name is Jack Lomas, and join me as I speak to some of the brightest minds in the built environment, hearing firsthand their experience building the future of our planet. For this episode, I am so excited to welcome Chris Caldwell, CEO at United Renewables, a renewable energy development business specializing in wind power, solar energy, anaerobic digestion, hydroelectricity and biochar. Now, over many of the previous episodes, we've touched on the key role that renewable energy, specifically wind energy, plays in the energy transition and some of the challenges the planet currently has when it comes to adopting wind energy at scale. There are environmental elements, there are financial elements and the cost of capital. There are policy challenges and how politicized it's become over the recent years. And altogether, it truly makes for a pretty exciting industry. If any of this interests you, we've got a really exciting episode for you today. Chris and the team are innovative and they are challengers, challenging the way that it's done within the industry, growing at an amazing scale and pioneering wind technology in areas still dependent on fossil fuels. Over the course of the episode, break down what this journey looks like and how Chris went about building a renewable energy company from scratch, which I'm sure you'll find a pretty interesting story. We touch on his perspective of the challenges and the opportunities within the sector and his hopes for the future. If you enjoy this episode, please consider giving it a share on LinkedIn and a follow on Spotify, as it really helped promote our conversation to others who might find it helpful. Now, let's welcome Chris. Of course, yes. Yeah. So name's uh, Chris Caldwell. I'm CEO of a company called United Renewables. Uh, United Renewables because we started out in winds and then developed into solar, anaerobic digestion, storage, so all types of renewable topics. So we decided to be United Renewables because we have a lot of originality. And what we do, we are a primarily a development business. Uh, so we find the sites, get the plannings, deal with the grids, and builds, own, operates with co-investors and renewable energy plants. We're starting in the British Islands, so uh, Republic of Ireland, Northern Ireland, Isle of Man, Scotland, trying to do some stuff in England, a little bit difficult. And we also do uh, clean tech investments. And so we've got uh, a few kind of startups uh, coming out of the, the, the main business in uh, primarily kind of carbon capture storage. And um, also do kind of climate conversations, so podcast host and write some articles on it. Very kind of passionate about, the, about this space. But take any excuse to spend time and to talk about it. Thank you for the opportunity. Brilliant. And it's that last point that I want to maybe start with. Yeah. We spoke the other day and you, you raised this quote from Obama, which said, we're the first generation to feel the effects of climate change, but the last generation to do something about it, which I thought was really quite poignant. And I wanted to maybe ask you about that as someone really at the forefront and at the face of the energy transition, what's your perspective on this? 
Yeah, yeah. No, it, it's a really good quote to be framing the conversation now <clears throat> because it can it leads you in a couple of directions. One for like despair, and the other for optimism. So <laughs> we we'll cover up both sides. So we're currently this year is the hottest year that humanity's ever felt, and last year was the second hottest. Year before the third hottest. There's a strong trend happening here. We're getting hotter and hotter all the time. And the impacts of this, we've seen floods, forest fires, drought, hurricanes. And with all of that, CO2 keeps rising. Uh, every single, Even during COVID, when the world essentially shut down, or the developed world uh, essentially shut down, CO2 levels still kept on rising. So this is a huge challenge, but also a huge opportunity. And the, the quote that uh, President Obama, Obama said, See, of course, we're the first generation to feel the impacts of climate change, but the last to be able to do something about it. So we, there is the opportunity to do something about it. We've got the technology that they're there to be able to do it. Now, on the challenge side of it, unless we, we get down to it, we're, all of the problems we've had so far are at the 1.2 degrees uh, above pre-industrialized levels that we're at now. We are only at 2028 to get to 1.5 degrees as, as thing, things are going with all the commitments in there. And then we're only at 2034 to get to two degrees Celsius. And that's when all of the tipping points start to happen. Could spend a lot of time talking about what those tipping points look like, but it's fair to say none of them are good. And you just got to take in the frames of what's happened with the, all the hurricanes and happened across Florida, Bahamas, Pakistan, two thirds of the country underwater. I just the forest fires in New York, all of these really striking forest fires all over the continent of Europe. The, all of these things that are making human life much more challenging. And then at 1.2 and ramp that up to 1.5, ramp that, ramp that up, to, up to two. And we're really facing kind of existential type crises. But that, so that's the challenge. Like on the hope side of it, the optimist side of it, it is, a, it is an enormous opportunity. We need to be spending somewhere between four to six trillion dollars every single year between now and 2040 to be able to, to solve this problem. And there's large amounts of capital that are being, that's not the full amounts, but we're moving in the right direction. So large amounts of capital are being deployed each and every year to try and solve this problem. So it, it creates an opportunity for people who are interested, passionate, dedicated in the preservation of human existence on the planet. And I think that should be pretty much everybody should be interested in having a, pl a planet for us to be hanging out on and enjoying, living, surviving and thriving on. So it's a, a friend of mine who says quite regularly, it's the greatest wealth creation opportunity of our generation the energy transition and climate change. So if you know, people are interested in getting in there, almost every sector will be touched by it. So there are opportunities in every single sector to get involved and to make a difference. So yeah, it's a huge challenge, huge opportunity, and we need to embrace it. I guess talking about opportunity, I really just want to ask you, how does one go about building a renewable energy company? We see mm -hmm. the Orsteds, the SSEs with their big offshore wind farms. And that's incredible. And they have a huge market share. But how does someone go about actually building their wind turbine company? It seems yeah. so, so challenging. Yeah, it's, there are a lot of challenges. There are, but it's the same with having any, any new business you try and start up. You, so I started out from the point of view of banking, of infrastructure, of, and I was a lawyer before that, an economist before that. And so I'm spending a dozen years in banking. So I knew quite a lot of stuff about theory. I knew how to raise some money. I knew what the general economy looks like. But as far as engineering was concerned, I had, had very little notion. But was looking for opportunities to, one, make a difference, make a meaningful impact on climate, and to cut my teeth in the sector saw that there was um, an, an 
economic opportunity in a healthy regulatory environment in Northern Ireland to be, to be building wind turbines. Uh, ra- raised, raised a little bit of money, uh, went up, and in theory, you had everything that you needed. You had a supportive population, uh, you had a strong legislative uh, framework, and you had a decent incentive structure. And with these things, you could be, in theory, you could go and building, but then you get the reality on the ground that you get there is not quite as simple because the, the, the land sizes, the plot sizes are small. And the plot sizes are small means you can't get economies of scale. Uh, the planners are, in theory, have the, regu- the regulation that says you know, we're, we're supportive of wind. But in reality, when you talk to the individual officers, their point of view is we shouldn't be putting up large, large tall vertical structures in the countryside because they don't want skyscrapers in the countryside. Understandable. But wind turbines, skyscrapers, different things conceptually so but you still had to had to take take them to the grid uh, then with the grids um the grid was very used to doing the you know the straight kind of point to point energy where you've got one large energy gen- energy generation system be it a, you know gas gas powered uh, plant coal power plant whatever it might be and moving it from one point to to a substation to, to push it out and that then uh, then we were talking about having dozens and dozens of little generators. And so the, the analogy is instead of asking the grid to be running like a train station where you're moving, moving along kind of one straight line, you're asking them to be managing kind of traffic in downtown Manhattan with all the, the traffic lights and cars if it's different around. It becomes a bit more difficult. But so we had to sit sit down, spend a lot of time time with the grid operators, with the with the planning uh, planning process um, to try and get get things in the suitable for wind to be built. So we did that. Then we had to go and raise, you know, a reasonable amount of capital to go and build these things. That became that was that was quite challenging because you had the small land sizes for spent. You had you didn't have the economies of scale, which would mean that institutional investors would come in. And you also had it was relatively novel, like in Northern Ireland, they had built these before into any professional scope by the time we came along. So we had to go and match the capital. So we went through kind of high net worth individuals, you know, code for rich people, and I went up to raise kind of half a million million to get for a small one built and ended up like quite quickly getting to five and a half, six million and getting a whole series whole series of turbines built, which was which was great, great achievement. And since doing that, so it's we started out and there was pretty much zero renewable energy in Northern Ireland that's now kind of broke broken 50%, but probably this year it'll be more like 50 55% of all power from renewables. So we're like very proud of the the role that we played in moving that forward. Brilliant, brilliant. Thank you. It's such a fascinating journey and, and one that's really quite inspiring. I want to ask you about a recent post that you that you released on LinkedIn related to, I guess, the vision for the sector and really coming back to your sort of entrepreneurial spirit within such a hard infrastructure market. Your quote was around the need for a, a Google or Amazon for clean energy infrastructure. So with your entrepreneurial spirit in mind, I've got to ask you, are you wanting to be the, the Google or Amazon for clean energy? It, it, it's, a, it, it's a great question. Yeah, thank you very much for doing your, doing your research. That was an article that I wrote 18 months or so ago. And it was after a conversation with a London Business School professor called Michael Jacobinos, who, who talks about business ecosystems. He's like a fascinating guy. If you look at the fossil fuel industry, so it's a classic old school vertical sector where there's a straight line between someone explores, someone drills, someone refines, someone burns, and the value is on the all in a straight line from the earth to the consumer. Now, that's and those are the business models that were going successfully for for hundred years. Now, twenty first century business models arrived with big tech, where they discovered there's more value in connecting with each other, connecting with with the web or people around the the, the businesses that are around you than there is, is with fighting. So. 
the, the best kind of the, the foundation of this is really kind of Steve Jobs' mental transition from the iPhone to opening up the App Store. And instead of like his, he had everything closed and he said, okay, no, everything's open. What we're going to be doing is we're going to be building the infrastructure and open up to third party developers and welcome them, them to build. And that's really where the most valuable business in the world was born. By them being the manager of this business ecosystem, setting out the platform, setting out the rules and allowing others to come on in and, and build them. So in a business ecosystem, firms feed each other, they compete with each other, they create habitats. Now, the smartphone, it enabled e-commerce, it enabled software as a service, it enabled the cloud, big data, and it was all under one kind of common platform. Now, in taking that to climates, we say we've, we've got this kind of straight line there from Earth to consumer, but if you take the example of, say, your electric car, your electric car can be your motor transport. Sure, but can also be a grid balancing system. It can also be your own energy storage. It can be, it can form a, a myriad of, of different services as long as we all communicate and co cooperate together. It can be advertising, it can be, it can be all sorts of things. Now, we don't have a kind of an alpha predator type <laughs> within the ecosystem, like your, the Google, the, app, the Apple, who are controlling, who are setting the rules of the game. And actually, I think the, the phraseology that Michael used with the coordinator. So the coordinator, creates the rules, sets the margins, and in return, they make the system all hang together and allows other, others to, to innovate. Now, it's you do need that type of kind of predator in this environment, the kind of strong business, business in the environment. And who that turns out to be will be quite interesting because it could be the engineers, it could be big, big tech company, it could be, could be a myriad of players. It is important. It does need to happen because... Even though the whole idea of an ecosystem, of, of a predator and ecosystem sounds, sounds quite scary, you need the, kind of the hungry new visionary to come on in and knock the old alphas, which in this case are the fossil fossil fuel, fuel companies, off their perch. It's happening. It's a sector that is ripe for that type of development. And I guess it all comes down to incentives, right? And I think on the topic of incentives, we've got to talk about the UK wind auction situation. Oof. It's okay. a beat in itself. And th yeah. there will be some folks listening that maybe aren't as familiar with what is happening. So I'd like to maybe just start at the beginning. Very good question, because the UK has been uh, an absolute world leader in offshore winds. Like they've been, been total trendsetters. Now, part of that is is the whole the skill sets that was developed um, for North Sea oil in Aberdeen. That's the, you've got a lot of guys and girls who are very talented engineers who are very used to building platforms in very difficult conditions who are then used to get, getting up, main, maintaining, keeping things running. So that was a very particular skill set, which, which happened to be there. You also had, had very friendly geology where the, a lot of the problems with offshore wind are just the sheer depth of the ocean. And it's quite shallow, like this, this shelf of offshore around, around the UK is quite shallow. So you can be putting up very large turbines without having to go down through an awful lot of oceans. That is, again, very helpful. We also had policy where there was, okay, under your particular kind of David Cameron's government, he was very much pushing for wanting to be the, green, the greenest government ever. And it's the same with the leaders in Scotland, uh, Nicola Sturgeon and the rest, decided that, that offshore wind was going to be something that they wanted to be very good at. So they heavily incentivized and made the planning process straightforward, put out some attractive incentive structures to allow for the building of offshore wind. Huge success story. It's a great linkage of, of skills, of policy, of uh, pol political will, of geology, of wind resource, and it was a, a great U UK than European success story. Now, the world has changed somewhat. Now, 
particularly embarrassing due to the UK as the last offshore wind auction had literally zero people going for it. So it was like, how did you do that? How did you mess this up so badly? And they just messed it up really badly. Like they totally mis- mispriced it. They have missed that the world has changed. Now, this isn't, it's not just saying this is, a, this is a pure UK problem. It's not. It is a, it's a global problem. Now, just to take it one step back, this stuff is really difficult. If you stand, just to, to give you an idea of the scale, you go to the London Eye, you look at the London Eye, you go, that's big, yeah? These offshore wind turbines are, well, can be twice the size of the London Eye. This is enormously difficult stuff. So taking these like behemoths, like building a skyscraper in the ocean is technically really hard, logistically really hard. So it's really expensive. So if you have little changes to, to your supply chain issues, you have little changes to your cost of capital, it's, it can massively knock out the margins economics of this. And that's exactly what's happened. Very expensive thing, things to build. And then you've got two major trends that are happening globally. One is inflation. And that is that that affects everything that affects like this is there's a lot of steel, there's a lot of supply chain problems, there's a lot of issues in the, of the building and the laying of the cables that just pure inflation makes more expensive. I've heard different reports, but it's at least 20 percent and possibly as much as 40, 40 percent higher than it was uh, pre the you know, Russian invasion of, of Ukraine. That's a huge step. The other part of the inflation issue is is the reaction policy re- reaction around the world, which has been to increase interest rates. Increasing the interest rates raises your cost of capital. So it makes it more expensive to, to go and build these things as well. So you need a higher return. A combination of inflation and higher cost of capital has caused the globe to slow down on the building of offshore wind. 2021, you had 21,000 megawatts built. Last year, you basically had none. <laughs> so it's, it's gone from being huge to almost nothing. And we have to overcome these problems. So one of the solutions that I'm hopeful for is readjusting and the pricing is readjusting and the next wind auctions that go out from the UK and other governments will be priced to take into account everything's more expensive. So there will be more interest next time rounds. They just, the policymakers just haven't caught up this time. So we need to be dealing with higher cost of capital, but so policy is catching up. We definitely need to be hopeful and we're seeing some signs that maybe there'll be improving policy coming to play. We're also seeing innovation in the the materials that turbines are built with. I guess all of this sort of transition period that the UK is going through, meanwhile, in parallel, China is continually ramping up. And it's, you can't help but feel that potentially the UK is losing its legitimacy on the global stage of offshore wind. What's your perspective on that? Yeah. The UK has historically like world-leading um, engineering skills. And there was a very strong moment where it looked like the UK was going to be really heading the charge for renewables and um, infrastructure that's, that could be a uh, whole ecosystem. Now, let me just kind of divert and to give you the example of Ireland, uh, where for decades we've had a kind of slightly centre-left party followed by slightly centre-right party, Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, following each other. So one government and the other. E- each time when a government comes in, they're looking, that's working, but we'll make it better. 
And so they don't throw out what the last guy did just because the last guy did it. And they move along and say, okay, we want to have a like large chemicals infrastructure business here. How do we build the, build the ecosystem? How do we get the academics? How do we get to get the workforce? And then you've got the skills to have, have the companies. The companies then in a virtuous circle, attract more people and more companies. You build up an infrastructure around it. So now Ireland has got a very you know, hugely successful kind of chemicals pharmaceutical business. There's something similar with, with, with tech. But slowly but surely over the years now, what each of these industries needed was just consistency. They needed to understand what was happening next. So they need to know if you're going to be building a factory, going to be building a production facility, going to be going to building whatever, this is going to be 25, 30, 30 year investments in the country. You need to know to have some sort of sense that you're still going to be able to operate in an economic sense for the long term. And that's the problem with, with shifting policies. That's the problem from saying you want to be the greenest government ever to then saying a couple of years later, we want to dump this green crap. Two quotes, same man, saying the same thing. People had been stepping up and people had been investing on the basis of policy that was that, that, that was set out. And then within a couple of months ago, they, they, they pulled the rug. So it's very hard for overseas investors, for foreign direct investment to come on in, in, in this industry and many others, where you don't have that consistency policy. If you have... In theory, you've had one government in place for an awful long time. Uh, but in reality, you've had a whole, a whole succession of different leaders who've, who've thrown out what the last guy's, guy or girl has done quite quickly. So it's hard for it for large, large industrials to come in and say, OK, we feel that there is the consistency in this country to be able to put in the investment. So I would suggest to whoever is going to be running the country next, in my humble opinion, be boring. <laughs> do what do what Ireland has done. Just be dull. Just don't try and shoot the lights out. Don't try and just go, this is our massive, like our five-year plan. We're going to change everything. Just no, don't want you to change everything. We just want you to know, here's our 10-year plan. Here's our 15-year plan. And we'll slowly but surely get you there. We will grow together. You make a little investment now. We'll look after you. We'll look after you. We'll build the infrastructure around you. And then you make more and we and ecosystems will build. And that's how, how we'll get the slow but steady growth is the power of compounding like the economic growth only happens in massive bursts if you give a sugar rush and if you give a sugar rush you get a crash afterwards with simple economics you want to compound a couple of percent each year and you get to really great places slowly but surely sugar rushes are not the way forward i love it i love it and I think I might make, have to make that the title of this episode. UK <laughs> needs to be boring. Just be boring. <laughs> be boring, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What is not boring is your work in Barbados. So oh, wow. building wind energy infrastructure in Barbados. Yeah. I've got to ask you about that. Like, how does one go about introducing wind turbines in Barbados when it's so far from home for you? Barbados is a place, it's, it was very personally meaningful to myself, to myself and family. It's, we've been going there for, since I was tiny. And as uh, so we spent enormous amounts of time, it is, it is a second home to us. And seeing the destruction of it over, and the like, destruction is, is a big word, but it's, it's a true word, over the years was, was like, it was tough to see. Uh, you've had hurricanes, you've had tidal erosion, you've had beaches, beaches washed away. And it's been like, like Storm Thomas in 2010, Devastated the office, like absolutely devastated the office. So when we got into renewables, we started to start to learn a bit more about how to build. One of the priorities was, well, we should be trying to help uh, other island nations uh, to be turning the page for into a green, more robust and uh, sustainable uh, energy system. That's important because 
as you mentioned China before, I've also met, mentioned kind of the Inflation Reduction Act in the US. India already uh, placing large amounts of capital into uh, kind of the energy green energy transition. And all of the European Union putting a huge amount of money towards the energy transition as well, which is roughly equivalent uh, per capita to the Inflation Redu- Reduction Act. Doesn't really get, get a lot of um, lot of headlines, but all of the intellectual and technical attention is being focused on these major areas because that's where all all the capital is. Where it's not being focused on is the parts of the world where who've done the least to be causing these problems, but are feeling the most impact of them. So it's it is like we sitting in kind of the global north are able to deal with climate change an awful lot better because we've got we, we, we've, we've had the benefits of booming economies for a lot of years. We can be building malls, we can be installing air conditioning, we can be doing things to, to lessen the impact on our daily lives. Other places are literally being washed away. So it's and so decided we would try and help island nations. So was told wind was impossible, build solars. People are building solar already. That's fine. We don't need to be here trying to build solar because that's happening. And to, for a robust energy system, you can't just rely on one. You need to balance all of the different technologies trying to give you give a robust system. You rely on one, but you for significant parts of the day, week, month, year, you'll have no power. So with we so we thought we'll go we're going to do it. We were told it's impossible. So we just kept on asking about why it's impossible. So there were a couple of questions that we knew how to answer, which one was planning, another was grid. Uh, but there's some things that we didn't know how to answer, which was how to get things financed in a hurricane zone. So we thought, okay, let, let's try and figure it out. First, not, you need, need to crack with insurance because unless you have insurance, you won't get finance for, from anywhere. In the end, we had to solve a couple of problems in one, which was uh, instead of having kind of one concentrated wind farm with higher economies of scale, but much higher risk of a hurricane uh, coming through and bla- blasting, like taking out multiples at one time, took a distributed system. Uh, so we said, okay, so instead of having kind of 10 turbines close together, we'll uh, have a look at the areas of the island where wind is, is most suitable and get kind of 10 different planning commissions. Uh, and, and have them all spread out. And then to went to the, the insurers and said, our risk is much lower because we're spread out. If one goes down, we still have nine going. Yeah. But that's all the problem of disaster. You don't want disaster to happen because it's, even if you have insurance, it's still, it's your turbines are going to be down, insurance premiums will begin to go up. Said, well, how do we try and make this a bit, little bit safer? So we found a, a manufacturer where you could put kind of bolts along the, 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 bot, the bottom of your turbine and fold over the, the so point the nacelle up, have the blade, the blades pointing up, have, have the, the tower, tower to line down, put some tarp over it. If you have time, take the blades off, you don't have time, put tarp over it, tie it all down. So if the hurricane comes through, you get a much better chance of survival. So again, there was another way of getting insurers and investors happy with it. Once you solve these, you then go down to the funding question. Again, nothing, no one institutional will go there as before. And no debt will be available there. Cost of capital is much higher in that part of the world. So how do you do it? Again, you need to make it incredibly cheap. Like just tiny, just reduce your cost of capital so much. So we were taking down turbines, which we were repowering from another part of the world, putting them on a boat, sending them across. So it's a real kind of combination of, of kind of an international network of people that kind of UK insurance technology originally from Japan, masters and mastered in India, our own kind of know-how local contractors, local civil operators, local planners, then international finance, essentially again the high net worth worth world to try and get these things up and built. Brilliant challenge, love your great experience and. Yeah, it, it's a lot of fun. This like we would also do some really big projects. Like we got like three hundred fifty megawatts in Scotland. That is great because it's boring and it's dull and it's bread and butter. And you understand you got to got a queue of people who want to be there talking to you about financing it. 
this stuff's more fun. <laughs> cool. Yeah. Really cool, isn't it? Yeah. I, I'm yeah. quite envious of the types of challenges that you get to work on there. But equally, I, I focus on challenges within the water sector and they're plenty mm. to get started. And they're right there too. Yeah. yeah. So I, I guess one, one quick question to finish then. Okay. What are you most hopeful for when it comes to the energy transition? What am I most hopeful for? I think that we, the bottom line is we have, as the often quoted McKinsey study says, we have the vast majority, like 78% of all the tech that we need. And all that we then need are the innovators and uh, entrepreneurs to be able to solve the final 20, 22%. But we also need to have the policymakers in the front ends to be trying to be de deploying this at 78, 78% effectively. What makes me hopeful is that there is a, it's hopeful, but for a bad reason. The bad reason is we can no longer ignore the problem because we're like, the evidence is abundantly clear around this. It is impossible to, to say no, climate change isn't something that you think about because it is an existential crisis. So that is bringing all sorts of different expertises into things and different areas into things. One example would be hedge funds. Hedge funds are now betting massively. Just had a large US hedge fund just giving a, a UK firm um, $500 million a couple of weeks ago to invest in climate litigation. So they are, they're going out and they're suing car companies for, for excess emissions. They're taking on the role of what governments should be doing, but aren't for lots of complicated geopolitical political reasons aren't doing. You've got the finance industry empowering dynamic mission-driven lawyers to be changed to legislation and holding holding companies in to bad actors in the camp. That also helps to create a generation of legal professionals who are might be purpose-driven and who can cut their teeth and really learn about this industry. So then hopefully they'll then be able to go into parliaments and be able to write new legislation. So one example. Another is artificial intelligence. You have a lot of people who are focusing in on, on the AI space and trying to see how it can be used to optimize energy systems, for instance, or to be testing out new, new tech in, in quick and cost-effective ways using AI and machine learning. We have the, the knowledge, we have the ability, all that we now need is the, is the, is the political will. And political will should come as Generation Z, Generation X, and now Generation A get into more positions of power and influence. Because it is, it's a, it's a broad generalization, but it is roughly speaking true that the next generations are far more focused in on the energy transition. Part of it is because of experience of COVID and more of a kind of a sense of, of the, the world around us. Part of it is a sense of, unless we do something about it, we have got a lot of years ahead of us where we need to be fa facing up to this. And we've got children and grandchildren to be thinking of. So there's a new generation that really cares about this stuff that is we are vote that are voting in that way that are voting also with their pens with their with the spending power in that way with a little with time this will all be done the problem is we're in a race against time where mother nature is really i could use 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 some other words but really annoyed with us deeply displeased with us and is showing us in pretty severe ways that she's not happy and she's kicking us and she's be kicking us harder as time go on. We need to be stopping the war that we're waging with, with Mother Nature and to be working together to work on energy transition, biodiversity and making the, the planet a more sustainable place. Chris, thank, thank you so much for your time. You've been listening to the Future Engineering Club podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. I really hope you enjoyed it. Keep an eye out for next week's episode. 
And in the meantime, give me a shout on LinkedIn and let me know what you thought. Thanks and goodbye.